Everyone says, hey, can we thank our worship team as always? And as you sit down, please um, try to move into the middle of the row as much as possible. We've, um, we are totally, totally overflown. Um, we have a whole group of people out in the overflow. Hey, guys, great to have you with us in the overflow today. Uh, we know that there are people standing on the stairs down to Cape C. There are people upstairs as well standing on the stairs. So if you have a spare seat next to you, can you please just yeah, raise your hand? Uh, there's three seats right here, hosts. Uh, three seats right here. There's a couple of seats over here. Uh, come on in if you are outside and in need of a seat, um, and uh, we are so grateful. We know people are sitting on stairs and stuff as well. So um, it's a good problem when church is full, but we want to make sure that everybody feels comfortable uh, and that we make sure that we have a room uh, for everybody that's possible. Just a reminder, we have three services on a Sunday, 9.15, 11 o'clock, and 2 o'clock. I know 11 is uh, the very convenient service because it means you get to sleep in and then you can go out for lunch, but... Um, <laughs> If you want to, you can visit the 2 o'clock at any time. We would love to have you uh, at the 2 o'clock or the 9.15. Uh, but welcome to church. Welcome to the Vine. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're continuing our series in Exodus. Um, there's a couple of chairs here. I think there's two chairs right there, possibly. There's a chair. You can sit in my chair. I don't, I don't own my chair. My chairs. There's two chairs here. There's a chair down here. Awesome. All right. I'm going to stop speaking about chairs and start speaking about Jesus. So, um, <laughs> are you okay? You got a chair? You got a chair. Awesome. It's good to see you. So on Tuesday, April 17th, 2017, at exactly 11.15 in the morning, I saved somebody's life. And by that, I mean I literally saved their life. Like, I'm convinced that if I had not been in that exact place at that exact time, the other person most definitely, without a shadow of doubt, have died. I was in China at the time. I was in the south of China at a resort, having a holiday with my wife, just the two of us. Uh, we decided to go on like a second honeymoon. We left our daughter Mia at home. Uh, we went with two friends of ours, and it just so happened that the husband that we were traveling with with these other friends, uh, he was a senior member of the hotel group uh, that we were staying at and the place that we were staying in. And um, on, uh, on April 11th, uh, we had this incredible uh, breakfast, late breakfast. We'd slept in, had this great breakfast. And after breakfast, we decided that we wanted to go to the one pool in the complex. There was about four pools in the complex. We wanted to go to the one where kids were not allowed. Because you know, when you're a parent and you travel without your kids, you want to be without kids. You know what I'm saying? So we found the one pool in the resort where kids are banned, not allowed to go to. Uh, we go over there. We arrive there, and there are no other people in this pool. No one is around the pool at all. No one's swimming there or anything like that. So we think this is fantastic. We're all on our own. So we, we basically find these two lounge chairs on the side of the pool. We sit down. We start to get ourselves nice and relaxed and everything like that. Within about three minutes or so, two people arrive in the pool. Now, there are three things you need to know about these two people. The first is, it was pretty obvious that this was a daughter and her mother. The daughter was probably in her late 30s. The mother, I would say maybe late 60s, something like that. It was a, a mother and a daughter. The second thing you need to know about them was that they were fully clothed, okay? They were not dressed for the beach or the pool. They were fully clothed completely. And by the way they were walking around the pool and talking to each other, they were talking in Mandarin Chinese. I didn't speak Mandarin, so didn't know what they were saying. But I could tell by their gestures and the way they were talking that neither of them could swim. 
The third thing you need to know about this couple was that the mother was carrying with her one of those massive inflatable unicorn things that you see in the pool. You know those really annoying unicorn things that people like to lie on for the gram, right? This almost 70-year-old mother was carrying one under her arm, which I thought was bizarre because they were wearing clothes and it was very obvious that they cannot swim. So I was kind of keeping half an eye on them over my book. You know, anyone else people watch when you're on holiday? Come on, you know you do. You know you do. I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is bizarre. (laughs) Sure enough, the daughter goes down by the stairs of the shallow end and she calls her mother over. She puts the big unicorn floaty in the pool and she gestures for her mother to sit on the floaty. As she's doing this, she gets out her camera And by this point, I'm like, this is not going to end well. And as her mother sits on the floaty, she then pushes her mother out to the middle of the pool. (laughs) Like, just pushes the floaty out and gets her camera ready for the photo of her lifetime. At this point, I know disaster is looming. And this mother floats out to the middle of the pool and she tries to adjust her balance on this awkward floaty thing and she leans forward and she flips it and she goes straight into the middle of the pool. I don't even think. I jump up from my chair. I run as fast as I can because I'm going to save this woman. As I'm running, I realize something. I am also fully clothed. I have also just come from breakfast and I did not get changed at all and I'm fully clothed. So as I'm running, I realize I'm wearing my glasses, I'm wearing my hat, so I whip off my glasses, I throw off my hat whilst I'm running, I get to the edge of the pool, it was literally a Superman moment, you know, taking the clothes off. I dive into the swimming pool, I swim under the water and I come up right under her as she's drowning. She's drowning there, her daughter is screaming her head off, standing at the side of the pool. Now, the thing that saves my life and hers is that as I got to her, I realized I could stand on the bottom of the pool and just keep my head (laughs) above water. Just keep my head above water. So I'm standing there just with my head above water. I flip her around because she was facing down to the water. I flip her around and get push her head up uh, so that she can kind of see properly. I then get her in like a fireman's kind of lift thing like this. And I like as best I can kind of maneuver her over to the stairs in the shallow end. Her, her daughter is there. She grabs her by the end. She yanks her up and they walk away. <laughs> and I... I come up out of the water. I literally collapse on the deck of the pool, absolutely exhausted, but feeling like a hero. (laughs) Now, yeah. (laughs) Now, my friend, who's a senior member of this hotel group, hears about this heroic action from this white guy at the swimming pool. And because of his connections, he was able to get the CCTV footage of this moment. Do you want to watch? Yeah, all right, here we go. Here it is, okay. Here she is! Okay, no, this is my wife, my wife here. Look at her, she's like not sure. She, she's trying to get balance. Oh, get balance! Uh-oh, 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 uh-oh! Okay, here we go, look down here, look down here. Yeah! 
Yes! And I, now I'm like, I gotta, like, like, I'm trying to work out. I'm trying to get a breathing. Finally, the pool guy shows up. Thank you. Like, I've got her in a fireman. Look, there she is. I got her in, like, this fireman's posy thing right there. I'm helping her, and I save her life in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Not just a pastor. Real-life superhero. I love my dive. My dive's like a oh, really awkward dive. Anyway, <laughs> you're probably wondering, what has this got to do with the Exodus, right? Today we come to the story of Moses, a story which is birthed in this idea of somebody who reaches into the waters of death and brings somebody back to life. Last week when we were looking at the Exodus journey, we, we saw that this new pharaoh comes to power in Egypt and out of both his own insecurities and the fear that he has for this large immigrant community in his land, he decides to throw them under slavery. He decides to oppress them, to disempower them. And he starts by enslaving them, as we looked at last week. But then he decides very quickly to move from slavery to genocide. And he's worried about this rising army that could rise up amongst this group. And so he decides that he's going to kill every male boy. Now, to do that, he calls on the midwives, the Israelite midwives, to actually do the process of killing. So as they're delivering the children, if they deliver a boy, they kill it. If they deliver a girl, they let it live. Now, there are two incredibly brave midwives, as we saw last week, who decide that, no, they're not going to do this. They decide that they're not going to bring into genocide those of their own flesh and blood, and they defy the order of Pharaoh. And when we pick up the story here uh, this morning is right at this moment after the two women have defied Pharaoh, and Pharaoh realizes that his plans had been thwarted. Let me read this to you from Exodus 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but every girl can live. Pharaoh, knowing that he's been thwarted by these two incredibly brave Hebrew midwives, then turns to his people. Rather than getting the Israelites to try to kill Israelites, he turns to his own people, and he says, here's what I want you to do. If you come across an Israel, a Hebrew boy who's young, a child, I want you to grab that boy, and I want you to throw it into the Nile. Now, this is not a suggestion. This is a decree and a command of Pharaoh. And every Egyptian who is loyal to Pharaoh, which they all had to be, anytime they saw a Hebrew boy, this is what they should do. Pick up that child and literally throw him into the water. The word here, throw him, is really important. Throw them or throw into is really important. That word, remember, Moses is writing this. That word is a Hebrew word that means literally to abandon. And I want you to see what Moses is doing right at the start of this story. He's wanting us to understand what evil and what the enemy is always trying to do through slavery. He's always trying to abandon us from what is around us. Pharaoh decides that the best way that he can do this is abandon this child. And to abandon this child, to, to do this to the Israelites themselves, is to pick up the child and throw it in the water. To abandon it to the family, abandon it to their community, and abandon it, of course, to death. And this power of abandonment as Moses is writing this, is wanting us to understand that this is not just a moment that Pharaoh is doing. There's something that's seeped into the reality of what all of our sin does. See, in our slavery to sin, 
Sin is always at work to try to abandon us to our families, our careers, our loved ones, the things that are around us. You talk to anybody who has had the travesty of the slavery of addiction, and they'll tell you that story. You meet anyone who's been addicted to gambling, they will tell you that they've abandoned their possessions and were willing to abandon their possessions in order to feed that addiction. You talk to anybody who's been addicted to pornography or addicted to drugs, you'll find that they will do whatever it takes to abandon their family and their friends and their time to the things that they're addicted to. But it's not just addiction, it's any sin. Any sin that you are held captive to is at work within you to abandon you to what is around you. That's the work of sin. That's what the enemy is trying to do in your life. And it's important as you're on your own journey of exodus, as you're thinking about what it means for you to go from slavery to greater freedom in your life, you need to realize that that what sin is trying to do is abandon you to all that is good in your life, to strip that away from you. And one of the starting points of all of our journey in Exodus is to refuse to be abandoned, to refuse to move with an abandoned spirit. I, I want you to know this, that the greatest spiritual work that the enemy has over the global church is to fill the church with orphans, to fill the church with orphans in the spirit. Those that feel alone, those that feel abandoned, those that feel given up on, those that feel separated from everybody else. And not just with an orphan spirit about themselves and the people around them, but most importantly, this is the work of the enemy, to make us feel like we're an orphan to God, to make us feel like we're abandoned by him, that he has left us alone. And right at the start of this story, and Moses is about to unpack for us something incredible, he wants you to understand that the gateway into this story is the work that the enemy does through the reality of sin to abandon us. Now, he then says they are being abandoned into the Nile. Now, this is really important because the Nile, this is the first mention of the Nile in the whole of the book of Exodus. And the Nile is going to go on to dominate actually some of the integral moments of the early part of the Exodus story. You know the five movements I've been teaching you throughout the series so far, um, slavery, promise, liberation, identity, and home. The first three of those, slavery, promise, and liberation, all are integral to the work of the Nile. The Nile features in critical moments of those three movements. And this is the first time we hear about the Nile. And you need to understand why the Nile was super important to the Egyptian people and how the Nile is then used by God to flip the story, flip the script, and use the Nile as a liberating place for God's people. And to help you to understand that, I want to take you today to the banks of the River Nile in Egypt. Let's take a look. Flowing some 4,180 miles and covering one-sixth of the Earth's circumference, the Nile River is almost twice as long as the Mississippi, the Tigris, the Euphrates, and the Colorado Rivers combined. The river is formed from two sources. The White Nile begins in Central Africa and the Blue Nile begins in the Ethiopian highlands. They merge together in Khartoum, where they flow some further 1,600 miles to the Mediterranean. Historians believe that Egyptian civilization began about 6,000 years before Christ 
as early settlements began to pop up around the Nile, not too far from where I'm standing right now. And not surprisingly, the Nile became a source of all life for Egyptians and became the center imagery in so much of their mythology. But I think it was Napoleon who put it best when describing Egypt to his contemporaries. He said, in the Nile, Egypt has the spirit of good, in the desert, the spirit of evil. And I think Israel would not disagree because the Nile would be the good that begins their journey, but the desert, the struggle that would come to define it. And to understand all of that, I wanna take us on a journey down the Nile ourselves. All slavery begins with a simple step, the devaluing of human life. Once we devalue the life of another, we open ourselves up to perhaps the most sobering reality of the human condition, that regardless of how good or moral we might think we are, all of us are capable of committing the worst kinds of atrocities imaginable. Enslaving the other is the potential of us all. This is why our story starts here on the Nile for it's in these very waters that Pharaoh orders all newborn Israelite boys to be thrown in. Innocent children are murdered here simply because some people have decided that they no longer have an intrinsic value of life. Long before God turns these waters red in the plagues, Pharaoh does so with the blood of a thousand Hebrew boys. The source of all life has now become a graveyard of death. But stories of redemption and freedom so often are birthed out of the very same places where the worst acts of humanity actually take place. And the Nile is no exception, for it will be in and out of these waters that would come two acts from incredibly courageous women that demonstrate to us the very first step that is required in any fight against evil and its enslavement, the resolute conviction of the gift of a human life. In the midst of mass genocide, a Levite family bears a son. Their culture taught them that he was special and valuable from birth, a gift from God. This belief gives the mother the courage to resist the orders of an empire and do all that she can to try to save him, even if it would mean her own death in doing so. So she takes a wicker basket and in a decision of selfless courage, places her son amongst the reeds in the waters of the Nile. It was a pure act of suffering love. The only way that she could save him was through the sacrifice of letting him go. And so the boy is placed into the very waters his peers had been drowned in. And as destiny would have it, the very daughter of the man who decreed their deaths is the very one who would bring him back to life. Redemption has a way of ensuring no irony is lost.
This is the Bible's first story of adoption. And like all stories of adoption, it's only made possible through the courageous acts of those that value the intrinsic nature of life. So, a Hebrew mother moved to a selfless act of sacrifice in order to save her son. Or take a, a Pharaoh's daughter, moved to listen to her own heart as she stands against her father's decrees. And behind them both, a God who's always moved to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. This is how any act of exodus from hopelessness begins. And may it also then be for us. May you know a God who is able to draw you out of the darkest of waters so he might then adopt you into his family. Genocide, abandonment, sacrifice, release, the idea of being cut off, and yet then salvation and redemption within the very same context that brought that abandonment. This story right here has incredible power to it. And there's so much here that I, I wanna hopefully communicate to you so that you can really begin what it is that, really understand what it is that God is doing in this beginning part of Exodus for you. Let me read on from Exodus chapter two, verse one. It says, now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a good child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. It's really interesting what Moses does here is he's telling the story. He's trying to bring a big contrast for you as the reader. First of all, he's just started with this idea that Pharaoh has changed tactics now and is now abandoning all of these children to their death in the Nile. But as soon as he said that, he then opens up a very ordinary story to you. He tells you a story about an ordinary Levite family who you know, are just people that fell in love, got married, and decided to have a child. And when we read the story, we think it's just kind of this light idea. But if you think about the context of the moment, a couple who were Israelites at this time having a child, that was a very courageous decision. It was a very brave thing to do because they knew the edict that was under the world in Egypt at this time. They knew that Pharaoh had said that there, if they had a boy, that that boy would be murdered, boy would be slaughtered. And so as you became pregnant in that time, you would have been feeling this, all this anxiety if I give birth to a, to a girl, well, I guess the girl will live. If I give birth to a boy, then, then sadness and travesty will come under us. So just the idea of becoming pregnant was an incredibly risky thing to do at that time. But this couple decided it was a risk worth taking. And we're told right here that she has a boy. And it's really interesting what it says. And this is one of the critical bits in this whole passage. It says, when she saw that he was a good child, I love this idea of the idea of him being a good child. Now, you've got to be careful here. This is not talking about some moral statement. It wasn't that this child was particularly a good behaving child. It wasn't like, you know, he was just well-behaved and never cried and was just so nice that she decided to keep him, right? As if the implication was, if he was a naughty child, she'd throw him in the river herself, right? Like, 
that's not what it's saying here, okay? The, the word good here, remember, I've been saying each week that Moses, as he's writing this story, he's wanting to connect it to his other writings in Genesis. That's what's happening here. The word good here is exactly the same word that Moses writes in Genesis 1 and 2 to describe what God thinks, what God feels at the end of every day of creation. He stands back from that day of creation, and he says, this is good. The idea being that this is just as I've designed it to be. This is just as it should be. It's not a moral statement from God. It's a statement that the world in that moment is just in his will. It looks and it is as he desires it to be. To say that it is good is to say that it is under my control. It is in my hands. It is just as I want it to be. And everything is all set. The idea of shalom and peace is captured in this word of good. So here's a Hebrew mother who's just given birth to a boy who should be killed, but she sees that this is good. She stands back from creation like God does, and she describes it as good. What she's saying is, even though this is a boy, and even though we're not supposed to be having boys at this time, I know that this is in line with God's will, that God has willed me to bring a son into this world, so this child has value. This child has intrinsic worth. This child is good in God's eyes. It is well with him. It is well with his soul. It is in line with his purposes and his promises, and she sees that. And because of that, it drives everything she does next. It's like Moses is wanting you to understand the theological thinking of this woman. Because we look at her and we think, wow, she's incredibly brave. And Moses is saying, you want to know where that bravery comes from? It's because she can see God's goodness, the goodness of God in her son. She sees that the son is in the will of God, what the will is for them. Even if the son is going to be killed, it was still in the will of God and she she can declare it good. In other words, I don't judge the will of God by whether something goes well or not. Come on, church. I don't judge, she's saying, the will of God by whether I'm happy or not. I judge the will of God by whether he declares it or not. Does he declare this good? This child is good. So that idea then drives what she does next. She takes a papyrus basket and she coats it with tar and pitch. Now, very importantly, what Moses is writing here, what he's saying is he, he uses a word for basket here that he only uses in a few other times in the whole of his writings. One other time that he uses it is in Genesis 6 to 8, chapter 6 to 8, where he's describing Noah and the ark. The ark and the word basket is the same word. What he's trying to communicate to us is that this mother who knows that this child is in the will of God, she then takes a basket, she takes a ark, and she pitches, she puts the tar and the stuff, that waterproofs it. Interestingly, those are exactly the same two words that Noah uses to make his ark and to make the ark waterproof. Notice, the ark was designed to be a vessel that could carry humanity to safety, to life on the waters of death. Are you with me? So Moses says what the mother does here is because he sees this child is good, she creates her own ark for this child. And she places the child in her ark and she sets it off amongst the reeds of the Nile. In other words, you've probably read this story before and you think that she's abandoning her child because she can't dare to see the child be killed. Remember, it is Pharaoh that's abandoning. She's not abandoning 
She's dedicating. She's releasing. She's having the audacity to say, because this child is good, this is God's child more than it is my child. And I'm going to place this child in an ark, in something that could be a vessel of true life for him, and I'm going to release it in trust of God. I'm going to release the gift that God has given me. I'm going to give it back to God, and I'm going to set it out on this water. The waters that should be killing him are going to be waters that will bring him life. I'm going to put it in God's hands. I'm going to trust and release. And what Moses, in writing this, is wanting you to understand is the dichotomy that there is between Pharaoh that wants to abandon and a mother that so trusts God that she's willing to release to God. She's willing to give to God all the things that are there. And this difference is going to be what we're going to see play out in the whole of the Exodus journey. And this mother makes the decision that she's willing to release to God. You need to understand that if you truly want freedom for yourself and for others, then you're going to have to have the courage to release everything you have into the hands of God. Come on, church. If you really want to be on an Exodus journey, if you really want to go from slavery to freedom, you're going to have to have the courage to release all the things in your life into the hands of God. You're going to have to have the faith to believe that God can be at work in the things as you give them to him. You're going to have to say, even though I don't fully understand, even though I don't know what's actually going to result, I believe that God has a victory that's far greater than the victory I could ever define for myself. I'm willing to release into his hands and trust for his provision. That's going to be the journey you're all going to be called on. And here's the thing. We're all okay with releasing the stuff that we want to get rid of. Amen? Like when you hear a story about releasing stuff, you're thinking to yourself like, sure, I'll release. I'll release the bad relationships that are, that are dragging me down. I'll release the bad habits that I know are not good for me. I'll release all the mucky stuff in my life because I want the best life I can have. Here's the challenge. This mother gives away the greatest thing she had ever received, the birth of a son. And here's the really important point. Even the blessings in your life, if they are not wholly given over to God, will actually become the very things that will eventually enslave you. Is anybody here? Even the blessings, even the good things, if we hold on to them too tightly, will eventually become the things that the enemy use to enslave us. See, the reality is that God gives us blessings. And the blessings of God are good things. But so often what happens when God blesses us with a great career, with, with great finances, with a great relationship, so often we can take the blessings of God and then we can magnify those things and they can become an idol for us. And the very thing that was a blessing from God becomes a thing that enslaves us in idolatry. Some of you in this room are enslaved to your work which was originally a gift from God to you, but you've now turned it into an idol and it's slaving you, it's driving you. Some of you are enslavement to the finances. God's blessed you financially and it's been great, but you've taken a hold of it too tightly and you're now controlling it. You're not giving God any room to, to use it and to move it through your life and, and you become enslaved by the very blessing that God has given you. This woman, in the courage that can only be found in understanding that God is good at all times, she's willing to release even her greatest blessing, trusting that God has his will and his plan. 
you will come into the greatest moments of freedom in your life when you're willing to let go, not just the bad stuff you carry, but even hold the good stuff lightly before him. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a steward of his stuff. It doesn't mean that you don't steward the resources of God well. But it does mean that we have to be careful that we don't allow our stewardship of something to become an idol. And some of you need to just release. Release what it is that you're holding in your hands. Release what it is that you're experiencing in your life into a fullness of God's trust. And that courage to trust him like that will be the starting point of your exodus. It'll be the starting point of all that God can do. I want to show you that although this mother does not abandon her child, God also does not abandon her. Notice what happens next. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. I want you to track with what happens in this moment. So here's the mother who releases on an ark that she's created her child into the hands of God. And here comes one of the oppressors, not just one of the oppressors, but the very daughter of the one who's doing the oppressing, the daughter of Pharaoh. And she sees this basket in the reeds where she's going to bathe. She sends a slave girl to get it. She brings the basket to her. She opens it up. And immediately she sees that this is one of the Hebrew boys. Now, She, in her mind, is thinking, I should kill this child. This is Pharaoh's daughter. So the decree is not just some Pharaoh in Egypt that I guess I have to do because he's Pharaoh. This is her own father, and there is no time in her life that this daughter has ever disobeyed her father. Pharaoh's daughters were powerful, influential authorities. They were, a mere, they were an actual representation in their symbolicism of the power and the might of Egypt. There was no way that this girl would ever have disobeyed her dad. And here she is, and she says, this is a Hebrew boy that means she should abandon him. She should throw him in the water and she doesn't do it. And the question Moses wants you to ask is, why? What makes the difference here? Why does she decide not to abandon the child? He tells us right here, he says, he was crying and she felt sorry for him. The word sorry for there is a Hebrew word which actually literally translates as compassion. She felt compassion for him. This idea of compassion is going to be a central theme in the Exodus journey. In fact, in just a couple of weeks' time, we're going to see when God uh, decides to act on behalf of the Israelites, he decides to do so because he's moved with compassion. In fact, this compassion is what drives God to do all the things that he does to bring Israel out of their slavery into their freedom. Compassion will always be the starting point of any Exodus journey. But what's amazing here is that it's actually not God's compassion that starts Exodus, it's a woman's compassion that starts Exodus. And it's not just any woman, but it's a woman who is a part of the oppressors. I want you to see what God is doing here. He's taking one of the very oppressors of his own people, and he's using her to have the compassion that will begin an Exodus journey through the saving of Moses' life. God takes the heart of the one who should have thrown the child into abandonment, and he changes that heart so that she would have compassion to act differently. 
And the way that that word is written, it's written in such a way that it's actually describing God's power in that decision. In other words, her compassion is not just her compassion. God is at work in her to make her compassionate so that she will do this act in order to save a Hebrew child. More than I think the two midwives that we saw last week who have incredible courage, this woman has even more courage because the the back that she's turning, she's turning her back on her own father. This is personal to her. But she does it because there is this transformation that happens in her heart by the Spirit of God. Even though she doesn't worship God, she doesn't believe in God, she never thinks about God, God is still at work because God can take anybody and change their hearts for His purposes. And some of you need to hear that in this room in your Exodus journey. God can take anyone and he can use his spirit to change their heart so he can sweep them up in his redemptive work that he does in this world. It's not just us Christians that get to enjoy that. God even uses anyone, anyone, even a non-Christian can be swept up in the power of God. Their hearts can be changed and they can actually maybe even inadvertently begin to work on behalf of God's will. That's how powerful our God is. That's the victory that he has, that he's willing to stand over a group of people and say, I will work on every human heart to bring my purposes in this world. And for some of you in this room, that's a word in season for you because you're in a relationship right now where you've been praying for a long time for God to change their heart about something. And you think that that heart cannot be changed. You think that there's no way that that heart can be changed. You've kind of given up. Some of you in this room, some of you are parents, and you've been praying for the salvation of your children, and you look at your children and what they do and how they act, and you think to yourself, they're about as far away from Jesus as I could ever imagine. I don't think they're ever going to come to faith. Some of you have been praying for your adult children, and you're, you're desperate to see them come to Jesus, and you think they're never going to change. Some of you are in a difficult relationship in work, and you're like, God, if you only stepped in and changed this person's perspective, then my life would be a lot easier, but you don't think it's going to happen. And here's a story where the daughter of the oppressor has her heart changed by God so she can set people free. And that should encourage you never to stop praying. Never give up in prayer. If you've been praying for your child to come to Jesus, never give up on your prayer. He's at work. If you're praying for God to liberate you from some situation that you're in where you're feeling oppressed and you think that person's heart can never change to have a softer heart towards you, don't give up praying. God can step in and God can do the very things that we would never think he could do. And what's really beautiful and profound about this is that as God's at work in this woman's heart to do this, his heart is still so much for the mother. I want to show you what happens next. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. I want you to follow what's happening here. Because we serve a God who's able to turn things around. We serve a God that when you release, he will give back. We serve a God that when we step out in faith, he will do things that we never thought he would do to come around and turn things around. Here's a story of a mother who releases on an ark, believing that God can save her child, but was probably thinking, I'm never going to see him before again. I'm never going to see him again. I'm releasing him. I'm giving him to the Lord. I don't know what's going to happen. Here's a God who takes the oppressor and he breaks the oppressor's heart 
by his spirit, who takes this child out of the waters of death, decides to then have this child. Oh, and then it just so happens that Miriam, the child's sister, is standing nearby. She shows up and goes, oh, I know someone who could actually look after that child for you and nurse that child. The child goes into that person's hand. That person takes it back to the mother, and the mother gets to raise the child and get this. She's paid for it. <laughs> I mean, if, if you want to know a story of redemption, a story of God's heart for his people, he's saying, this is how Exodus begins. I changed the heart of the oppressor, and I have not abandoned Moses, but I also have not abandoned this mother, and she's going to raise this child, and she's going to be the only Hebrew mother in the whole of Egypt who is allowed to raise a boy under the very obedience of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's household provides her the protection to be raised the child that should have been abandoned in the waters. I said in the film that so often redemption and freedom is birthed out of the very places where the worst expressions of oppression have occurred. And you need to know on your journey of Exodus, the places that you think are the most broken in you, the places where you think God is the furthest away, the places where you think you're never going to get anything out of that, those are the very places God loves to birth his hope. Those are the very places that God loves to turn around. Those are the moments where God steps in and goes, you thought that this would never happen. Watch what I can do. Because I'm the God of the Exodus. I, I, I love this. There, there are some of us in this room where what you think is absolutely incomprehensible could never happen. God already sees as having had happened. For when this mother gives this child in the, in the ark and releases this child in the basket, God already knew. You could almost see him standing over her going like, <laughs> if only you knew what was about to happen, right? You can almost sense God's, God's excitement for her, that, that in her obedience of her letting go in faith, God is like, I'm going to reward that faith. I'm going to reward that faith by giving this child back to you. I'm not only giving this child back to you, I'm going to protect you so you can raise him. And not only that, I'm going to pay you so that you can then provide for your wider family. This is all happening because I reward faith. And you need to understand that that's what God does. God rewards faith. And sometimes we, we worry about saying that in church because we're so afraid of the prosperity gospel. But we also have to realize that in being afraid of the prosperity gospel, we've got to be careful that we don't become the impoverished gospel. And, and there's a center line here where God does reward faith. And it's going to require faith for you to step out in your own exodus. It's going to require courage and faith for you to let go of even the very things that are blessing you to ensure that they don't become idols. It's going to take faith in you to know that God is at work and that it is good, even though it might seem like it's overwhelmingly bad. Faith is an important part of your exodus. And here's this Pharaoh's daughter who does an incredible thing, brave thing, to stand against her father so that the child would be set free. Notice verse 10. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. See, Pharaoh's daughter didn't just draw Moses out of the water and give it back to the Hebrew family and then forget about him. She drew him out of the water because she wanted to take him into her family. And as I said in the film, this is the Bible's first story of adoption. 
And adoption from this point forward is going to become the main metaphor that the Bible uses to speak about the redemption work of God. In the New Testament, we know that the early church would use the adoption metaphor to help speak about Gentiles. And if you're in this room right now watching online and you're not of Jewish descent, then you are a Gentile. And you're a part of the incredible story of God because you have now been swept up in his adoptive power, that he has adopted you out of the waters of death and brought you now into his family. You are his child now. And that whole metaphor, that whole journey starts here. And you see, adoption is about the reversing of the curse of abandonment. Notice this, guys. Adoption is about the reversing of the curse of abandonment. Adoption is the very opposite of what Pharaoh is trying to do here. He's trying to abandon these children, but his own daughter, moved in compassion because the Spirit is at work in her heart, is willing to draw this child out of the waters and bring it into her own family. And it's as she's doing that, she's standing against the very abandonment that her father has decreed, and she's saying, no, this is family. In drawing Moses out of the water, what she's doing is drawing the boundaries of her family much broader than the confines of bloodline. It's hard to describe to you the travesty of what it would have meant for Pharaoh and his family that now a Hebrew child was part of the family. That was deeply, deeply embarrassing for them. And this daughter was the one who was willing to say, we're going to draw our family broader than just bloodline. Notice what she calls him. She calls him Moses, saying, I drew him out of water. This is really interesting. I want to just close on this. There's no way that Pharaoh's daughter spoke Hebrew or understood Hebrew. Just would not have been a thing. So she doesn't call him Moses in the Hebrew sense. She calls him Moses in the Egyptian sense. Interestingly, Moses was actually a compound word that was used in Egypt at that time. Uh, the word itself actually is this word here. It's M-S slash M-S-I. I know that doesn't really kind of sound like anything, but it means to give birth, to have a child or a son. And it's used, so the, these two people here are pharaohs of this time, Thutmosis and Rameses. I want you to notice the Moses on Thutmosis and the Messes on Rameses, okay? That's both this compound word that means Moses. So Thutmosis means Thoth is born. Uh, Rameses means Ra is born. So it's always this person is born. So something Moses. Does that make sense? Right? It's a little bit like in, in, in our modern day, we might say Johnson as a surname, son of John. Right? So this is something Moses means the son of, the child of that person. Here's the powerful thing. She decides to just call him Moses because she doesn't know who he's the son of. This child's been abandoned. She doesn't know that this mother that's been nursing him has been the real mother. She doesn't know where he comes from. She doesn't know the prefix to his name, but she's willing to call him Moses because what she's saying, I think, to her father and to everybody around her is that even though we don't know who this is a child of, he is a child. He is here. He has been born. He has value, intrinsic worth. I am not abandoning this one. I'm even going to take this one into my own family for he is a Moses, a child of, a son of somebody, and I value that, and so he is now mine. Powerful, right? That's right against her dad, and that's her saying this one has value. But Moses, as he's writing this, he, he uses the Hebrew form of his name, of course. And let me tell you what Moses means in Hebrew. 
Moses is Moshe in Hebrew, M-S-H-H, which is uh, there on the right-hand side. You can see the Hebrew actually of it. It literally means to be drawn out. Now, there's two ways you can use the word Moses, active, the one who draws out, or passive, the one who was drawn out. And Moses, as he's writing this, he decides to use the active verb of his name, which means the one who draws out. Because what he's trying to communicate is not just the heart that Pharaoh's daughter had to say, even though I don't know the prefix, I'm going to say that this is a son of. He's also then saying, I am the one who will draw out. God called me to be the drawer-outerer. I'm not just being drawn out. So it's not the passive context, the one who was drawn out. He says, I am the active word. I am, I am the one who draws out. And he's saying that this is what God's about to do in the rest of the story. He's going to use me to go back to Israel to actually take them from their slavery and sin and draw them into the promised land. I am the one who will draw out. And God stands over you and says, I'm the one who draws out. I'm the one who draws you out. And I draw you out so I can draw you in. I have drawn you out of the waters of death and I have brought you into new life. And this idea of drawing out and drawing in is what all of the Exodus story really essentially is about. And in about two weeks' time, I'm going to show you the power of what it is to be drawn out, to be drawn in. But right here, right now, here's what God wants you to know. You yourself are Moses. You are a Moses in the Egyptian and Hebrew sense. In the Egyptian sense, you are not abandoned. You are not an orphan. God looks down on you and says, this is my child. This one has been created and it is good. Some of you in this room, you don't think you're good. And again, I'm not talking about some moral statement. I'm talking about the purposes and promises of God to create you and bring you in this world. There is no one like you. And God loves you so much that he sees you just as you are and you are good and you are valued to him. You are his son and his daughter. You are his child and he welcomes you into his family. And you are a Moses in the Hebrew sense. You, if you're a Christian in this room watching online, you have been drawn out of the waters of death and you have been brought into new life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's forgiven your sin, removed it from you. You've gone on your ark through your relationship with God and you are now free to be who he has called you to be. It's a beautiful thing. But you are also a Moses in the sense that your primary will, the primary will of God over your life is that now having experienced salvation and life yourself, having been taken from the waters of death and brought into life itself, you now are one who can Moses with others. You now are one who can stand before the people in your workplace, the people in your family, the children that you have, whatever it might be, and say these things will not be abandoned either. And this will be something that I can partner with God to bring out of darkness into light. That's Exodus. That's the journey. And that's what you're invited into. You are not abandoned. You are a child of God. He sees you and loves you. And as you trust him, and as you're willing to release control of your life to him, you will see a freedom and an exodus in your life like you've never seen before. Can I pray for you? Would you stand with me? And as we stand together, I wonder whether you close your eyes, open your hands. I want to minister now to you guys in the spirit by reading a psalm over you. Thousands of years later, or about a, maybe about a thousand years later, 
David writes a psalm, Psalm 18, and he pulls up this imagery of Moses being drawn out of the water. And I wanna pray this over you. It says this, the Lord has reached down from on high and taken hold of me. He drew me out of the mighty waters. He has delivered me from a powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. For they confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. For he brought me into a spacious place. He has delivered me because he's delighted in me. Father, I thank you that you delight in every person here and online right now. And Father, you are at work with deliverance, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would give us the courage of this mother to let go, the courage of this mother to release to you everything in our lives, trusting that you are a good father. And Father, when we carry an orphan spirit in us, it's such a thing that breaks us deeply. And it causes us to be abandoned from the people around us. I wonder whether you just take a moment to recognize whether that's something that's a reality for you. Do you feel abandoned? Abandoned by God? Abandoned by your family? Abandoned from people around you? Do you feel looked over? Do you feel like nobody values you? Do you feel cast aside? Do you feel like no one sees in you what you see in yourself? Do you feel like you don't have the worth that others might have? That's the work of abandonment in you, to try to define you in any other way than how God truly sees you. Father, we come against the spirit of abandonment over these people in the name of Jesus. And Father, I wanna release the spirit of adoption right now. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room would know that they are valued, created, a Moses, that they are loved by you, a child of yours, that they would know that they are a Moses, drawn out of the dark waters into salvation and life. And as we're just praying with our eyes closed, I wanna just say this. There's some of you in this room and your parents. And I felt this strongly in the first service and I feel it strongly now. Your parents over children and you're holding on too tightly to your children. And your children are a gift from God, a blessing from God, but you're holding on to them too tightly. And you're afraid you're afraid to, that they might feel abandoned or, but you're holding on so tightly, you're crushing them. And the word of the Lord to you today, he's saying, do you trust me with your kids? Do you trust me with your children? Because if you do, release them to me. That doesn't mean you give up all your responsibilities, of course, but it means that you let go of control that you release that control over your children to the Lord. And some of you here believe that, believe that those children can't change and you're so frustrated and out of that frustration you've been controlling. And God's saying, watch what I will do through my spirit in the heart of your child. I could do more than you could ever ask or imagine. Do you trust me? Father, I pray for whoever that is here in this room online right now, that, that would be a word for them. And as all of us sit in this idea of releasing adoption, 
how God works through his power and sovereignty to change the world and to change us. I pray that that would be your, your worship, that that would be your song, that would be your testimony to say, I know a God who has reached down into the mighty waters and has delivered me from death.